Welcome to Trauma-Informed Caring, an Essential Conversations podcast brought to you by the Mid-America Addiction Technology Transfer Center, funded by SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Although funded by SAMHSA, the content on this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of SAMHSA. We will begin this episode as we begin all of our episodes with a brief mindfulness practice. And I'll just take a minute to remind you that one of the reasons we do this is because sometimes the content that we discuss in this podcast has the potential to be activating for your stress response. Actually, all of ours too, as we are recording this. So we pause, uh, we invite you to pause with us and do this brief practice to ground ourselves, to kind of get ready to get into the conversation. And we invite you to return to a practice like this if you need it at any point during this podcast episode. Thank you, Andrea. Going into this particular exercise, I want to have a moment of just being able to settle in to who we are and our current circumstances. Um, So we're just going to do three really easy, smooth breaths, inhaling in, exhaling with the exhale kind of letting letting it be like snowfall letting yourself relax in that sense with the next inhale accepting who you are exhaling to settle into the moment your thoughts and your emotions inhale to take in your current environment exhale just to settle into your seat For this particular exercise, I wanted to share a quote from a book I've been reading. It's called Lighter by Young Pueblo. The mind moves so rapidly that it feels as if we are being authentic, when in reality we are letting our past experiences dictate how we feel in the present. Sometimes when we are triggered, we feel justified in expressing our anger by yelling or by loudly acting out our frustration. But this is not a sign of authenticity. This just reveals that we are caught in a cycle where our minds are overloaded with tension that keeps trying to feed its own fire. This is why slowing down and pausing will help us regain our footing in the present. Take a moment to process what is happening and align your actions with how you want to show up in the world. This is a much greater signifier of who you actually are than the random things your mind blurts out. Let go of the idea that who you are is whatever you impulsively do. Recenter yourself on the fact that authenticity is a quality that requires strengthening and cultivation. Also, accept that your authentic self can change and mature over time. You are not stuck in old ideas, patterns, and identities. Thanks for letting me share this quote. Hope that was beneficial for you. Beautiful. Thank you. I'm Andrea Dalton. And I'm Roxanne Pendleton. And this is Trauma-Informed Caring. We are so delighted to have you join us today. We have two guests that we have had the great pleasure and honor of working alongside in our organization, University Health in Kansas City, Missouri. And I'm going to invite each of you to introduce yourselves, tell us your name, and uh, what would you like folks to know about what you're up to in the world? And let us begin... Not with Jake, who led us through that wonderful meditation, but with Russell. Hello, everyone. Russell Anderson. I am an equity, diversity, and inclusion officer supporting administrative departments here at University Health, formerly Truman Medical Centers. Um, I'm honored to be here today. Um, My world is full right now with trying to help our organization figure out who we are in the world of health equity. How are we helping provide the best care that we can to people based on their need? And how do we as an organization move past the stresses and strains of both COVID, the strife that has impacted the workforce following things like, not so much strife, but like the reconciliation that needs to happen when you're thinking about the Me Too movement, BLM, those kinds of things all impact our life. And they even though we want to keep them outside the walls of our workplaces, they are very, uh, they're very impactful forces, and our work touches all these things uh, every day. Thank you, Russell. Thank you. And what Jake. Russell didn't say is that we worked with him in our department for a while too. We did. We did. And back in the day. Let, 
<laughs> back in the day. And let me just finish by saying I wouldn't be the man I am today without the uh the time that I spent with all of you. I really enjoyed those Aww. those talks oh. together. And I and I take them everywhere I go. So you guys are always wow. always on my mind. Thank you, Russell. That's awesome. I brag a lot that we know you. So <laughs> the feeling is mutual. All righty. Jake, tell us a little bit about you. Yeah. I mean, how do you follow that up? Hey, I'm Jake Pitts, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Officer supporting clinical departments here at University Health, the artist formerly known as Truman Medical Center. <laughs> and, and yeah, I mean, I echo every bit of what Russell shared about how amazing you guys are and as to our work and kind of its point in time, if you will, post-COVID current focus on trying to achieve justice, whatever your respective field means. Uh, if you're a DEI practitioner of any sort, trying to accomplish justice and equity will have a very unique context. Uh, and so for us, that's a very medical one, of course, and it's very scientific. Uh, but we also find it to be um, centered a lot on human behavior. In healthcare, we have lots of departments and individuals, practitioners, providers who need to recover themselves too mm. um, post-COVID. Sometimes, you know, that recovery involves even your own identity, uh, whether it be by purpose or by the identity of like, whoa, I've been so wound up by everything I've just gone through. Um, am I grounded to who I am and my experiences anymore? So, mm. um, so yeah, I mean, I, that's the only add-on I'd have to what Russell shared about our work. Uh, and it's a pleasure to be here with with all of you today. Well, we are so happy to have you both. And just a reminder to those uh, listening that our mission here really is to explore a variety of perspectives so that we can nurture knowledge and really inspire courage for practical, transformative action. And so this week, I think you are already able to understand that these guests are firmly anchored in uh, trauma-informed caring they uh, work on really the front lines to help reduce trauma and help to heal it and not re-traumatize others and to uh, lead us all in the work of transformation. And so my first question then is, in what ways do you see trauma-informed caring intersecting in the work of diversity equity, inclusion, access, justice, and belonging. And you can tell us about that in your work, or you can tell us about that in your life. You know, we are whole beings and who we are and, and our passions uh, don't just stop at the end of the workday. So in what ways do you see trauma-informed caring and diversity, equity, inclusion, access, justice, belonging intersect in your work or in your life. These two movements are powerful and I think they're running, they're in alignment with one another. How do you see them intersecting at times, either at home or at work? Tell us a story if you have one. What a great, powerful question. Let me start by saying that I don't think I could do this work in equity, diversity, inclusion, justice, belonging. I don't think I could do that without trauma-informed care background, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I think when you do that work correctly and meaningfully, it is hard. It's hard for a lot of different reasons, but it is very hard. It elicits, often requires emotional labor. Mm -hmm. um, it requires you to have to navigate the emotions and experiences of other people. Some are very hard. And that takes a lot. And I constantly find myself falling back to my time and uh, and experience with doing trauma-informed care implementation work that in order to cover these topics meaningfully i have to be able to go places with people and make sure that they're safe that mm -hmm. there's trust they have choice there's mm -hmm. collaboration and they're empowered to do things based on that perspective and also all of the concepts and information around the brain science triggers how do you manage stress anxiety um mm -hmm. has to be because a lot of this work immediately it just immediately sets off my stress response like i was at a meeting earlier today 
and just the talking. I just had to get up. I had to pace. I had to ground myself just because, and I was just listening. I wasn't even engaged in actual conversation. So the more that I do this work, they are both, they're two sides of a coin that I think if you're going to do DEI well, you need to have the other. I, if I was to be so bold. I mean, that's like the premise of our entire season. So we're with you. <laughs> Perfect. I, I feel like on, on like a personal level, um, like in my life, if I don't have some level of understanding, uh, trauma-informed care, trauma-informed caring, like, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to not be my most resourceful self. There's a whole level of like understanding the needs of your soul that's captured within trauma-informed care. And like, if you can't have that level of awareness, acceptance, and then treating with the trauma gloves, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, then, then like, yeah, you, you might just be neglecting injury in some sense, you know? So, you know, just thinking about the meeting that, that Russell is referencing during that meeting, we were encountering and interacting with concepts on systemic racism, white supremacy, and, um, historical trauma, really, you know, doing this work has asked us to deepen our understanding of trauma beyond just like ACEs and, mm -hmm. you know, things like this. Uh, sorry if I'm throwing jargon out there by using the term ACEs, but with adverse childhood events and experiences, getting less out of just like behavioral health constructs and getting even deeper to like, hey, your societal context, your context per your race, your gender, sexuality, et cetera. Like, all of these things have deepened an understanding of trauma that we've had. And then you go toward um, all of those things and how they intersect with healthcare and trying to be your healthiest self. Um, <laughs> now we're starting to interact with entire communities, how they've been traumatized and how maybe one individual or one clinic might be showing us how maybe they've been traumatized by a certain practice or something. So I think a nuance to how we, interact with trauma and therefore trauma-informed care and response has been that clinical aspect, that context of how we try to serve our community after institutions like, like healthcare have caused trauma in some mm -hmm. ways, you know, trying to win that trust back, trying to um, help them also be champions of their, themselves in their own point in time too. Gosh, some of our projects are centering around health equity like like russell had mentioned and um we noticed that these things kind of happen side by side the progress of trying to dismantle or undo some sort of like race-based medicine practice happening simultaneously with somebody processing their own trauma of like hey i might not have been this unhealthy head healthcare not been this institutionally racist thing, you know, inhibiting access in some way or creating some difference in how uh, my health is measured simply because of my race, you know? Um, so there is that, there is that nuance based on the context of our work. Um, yeah. And we see trauma-informed care providing this definition of how to pursue healing in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's really, uh, I could go a lot of directions. I have lots of questions, um, but I want to go back to something you said kind of toward the beginning that I want to highlight. Both of these movements, concepts, approaches really have to start with the person themselves. And I think, um, you know, kind of embedded in what you were talking about, but maybe you didn't say it straight out, was that... Um, trauma-informed care in particular, and I think this has happened with DEI kind of work as well, it's really been um, like this sort of outward focus or like service focus, uh, especially initially. And I think that that doesn't come from a bad place. Like, I, I think that that's a really, that's how a lot of change happens, right? <laughs> it's like we, we see a need and we do something to address that need. Um, but I think now I know the way we're talking about trauma-informed care uh, and especially as it intersects with equity, diversity, inclusion, justice, all of those kinds of concepts too, is that you have to do that with yourself first. 
You have to be trauma-informed with yourself. You have to recognize how those experiences that you have had (laughs) influence the way you then are able to show up and provide that service, whatever that service is, to other people, to a community. And then the, I think there's a, there's like a give and take maybe um, between like those experiences that I personally have had and then those that I'm serving have had and like how do those intersect to influence the way we talk to each other, behave toward each other. Like there's a lot of layers there. We're so there complicated. Are. Humans are so complicated. <laughs> yeah, there are. And uh, I'm only interjecting with like um, you bring up the crux of it all like it all starts with self-awareness um you know i've noticed uh, in in my time with uh, being a teammate with russell how much we've had to do a lot of reconciling work within ourselves and that reconciling work being a deep understanding of who we are as individuals because in order to do work to help another person feel included or feel a sense of belonging they really need a sense from from us that there's some level of inner peace going on. Yeah. Like I know my own experiences. I know why I would tell another person why I identify as Mexican American because here are the cultural experiences with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, here are the formative experiences. Here's how it's, you know, being who I am has uh, adjusted my lens and how I interact with the world. So like, yeah, I mean, you're you're saying it beautifully and I it just without that level of self-awareness um our our day-to-day is, is affected um and Russell's smiling because like I think we both know it's true those days where like we know we're gonna have a hard time serving those we serve mm-hmm. usually start with like ah, I'm not attached to myself something's yeah. not aligned whether it's some emotion that I'm feeling or maybe it's like hey this issue or this project that we're working on requires me to do some processing on my own about how I feel about this subject matter. Mm-hmm. Um, both of us being cisgender males, we, I notice before we do any sort of interaction with our LGBTQ neighbors and our community members and uh, from our LGBTQ communities, like we have to practice that self-awareness of like oh oh i have a i have a certain effect on this room Mm. like i have a i have a difference that i'm bringing here and that allyship to that particular community given those that identity that russell and i share it's like oh okay okay what what do i need to activate here it's going to be the humility it's going to be it's going to be that awareness of like all right um man what do i need to understand that they're telling me that i have no frame of reference for personal experience, but I know who I want to be here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'm starting well, to trade off a little bit because a, like that quote though that you shared at the beginning, I think just ties in so well with that. And I th- I remember the word that stuck out to me the most in that was authenticity. And you know, being able to convey that to first to feel it and then to convey it is is just essential to being able to do this work in a way that's going to be helpful and not harmful, maybe? Is that I don't is that fair? Oh to yeah. Say? <laughs> oh yeah. Everybody knows when they're being helped by somebody who's not doing it authentically. Even if it's like you're helping and like your authentic self would be tired. Your authentic self would be, you know, maybe a little bit more scrambled. People can tell like, hey, you're trying to button up for me right now. I don't know mm-hmm. why, but you are. I don't need that from you. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. One thing that I'm pondering as I listen to our discussion is what kind of practical tips you could share to respond with that humility in the situations you've described. I hear you saying that you have an awareness of your own identity. You bring that awareness uh, as well as possibly awareness of, of bias in, into your work, you know, like, right. The first step is, you know, it's there. You're not denying it. You're not oblivious. So awareness is first. Then I kind of could have, I kind of took from what you said that maybe there's a conversation that you and Russell have before you head into an encounter 
with a group that's very different from you. So maybe there's awareness, maybe there's um, conversation with your team. So you're on the same page. Is there any other practical thing that you would encourage people to do when they're having a conversation that includes diverse viewpoints and um, especially one that might be fraught with this kind of uh, historical trauma and potential for current trauma? Yeah. Um, we do trainings all over the hospital around mm-hmm. bias in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And the more that we do it, the more we recognize that we have to have more context of the people we're speaking to. Mm-hmm. And that coming in with an abstract conversation about, all right, here's bias. Yeah. You know, let's talk about it. You need to be more aware of discussing bias and then asking people to describe how it looks for them because it's not going to look the same everywhere Mm -hmm. and being able to provide space for those things to be shared and for there to be understanding and so instead of us being up there dictating to others around this is bias this is these are microaggressions we are the the subject matter experts we find ourselves more or less facilitating and navigating triggers and people acting out of fight flight or freeze and given that we're in healthcare we are an extremely stressed workforce right now extremely stressed and i don't think training in dei will have any real success if we're not able to deal with that stress response that everyone's feeling whether they recognize Mm -hmm. it or not Um, yes DEI work takes very intentional executive functioning to do because you've got to have awareness of, oh, when I do this, this is how it's perceived, that impact versus intent. That's a hard thing to do. Mm -hmm. And when you're just running back to back day to day on little sleep, you're worried about what's going on in your house, all that stuff. You cannot bring those brains down to back to where they need to be it's not going to work. And so the more we've done this, we've just recognized like DEI work for me is about how people experience it. And I think people who have a really bad experience with DEI become people who are going to stop you versus an ally or somebody supporting you. And DEI work is experienced. And I think trauma trauma and care work is the same way. It's that way of helping create that experience that people need to have. Yeah, I was going to say we're we're seeing similar things as we're doing trauma informed care implementation. Like there are a few places where we've had to kind of step back and say, okay, <laughs> they might have been ready for this a while ago, but now there's so much happening and everyone is so stressed. That we just have to we got to we got to bring it back to the basics of like how can you be okay in your body, right? Like how can you be calm and safe for yourself and really just the very, very basics of take care of yourself and then create that safe space the best way you can. Um, build some trust with the people that you're working with. We're not going a lot deeper than that at this point with a few places because there's just, our brains aren't able to take in that kind of information and uh, do a lot of processing with it right now. And that's okay. It's just, it's cyclical, I hope. <laughs> um, and I think we'll come back around to uh, and, and I think doing those things actually will help us then be able to come back around and get to a point where we can do some of that deeper application. But I see that myself with trauma-informed care implementation right now, too. Something that's coming to mind to me when I first started working with the team back in 2017 was, you know, our our leader in chief was all the time talking about how the practice is in the return whenever we we're doing I. It's like the practice is in the return is what she said to me. And I was like, what does that mean? And what it meant to me was that um, you have to practice those trauma-informed care things to get you out of your stress response. And the more that you do it, the faster you can come out of it. Like if I've never done anything and someone just gives it to me the first time, it's never going to happen. But the more that I practice these things, the easier I can navigate it, the quicker I can figure out what's going on. And I think DEI work is the same way in that you have to have a practice in place so that when you're faced with a situation, you're not scrambling somewhere new. You're practicing a skill set where you're like, okay, am am I aware of what my role is in this? Am I aware of what the perception of my role is in this? 
And what is it that the solution is based on that person's description, need, conversation? And so being practicing that over and over allows me to return quicker to a place where I can I can do that work. I love that. I want to write that down for myself. Uh, I mean, I, I say it jokingly, but I, I, I genuinely love it. You know, like in those moments where there's potential for tension, you can practice that empathy outward. You can practice that empathy of like, this person's coming to me from this culture or from this experience. Okay, well, this was formative for me. I won't, you know, I wonder what their formative experiences were, or I wonder what kind of transformation they're going through or what their priorities and values might be. You know, you can apply that kind of self-awareness outwardly. Um, and that's an empathy practice in itself. Um, so I'd say in those kind of situations, that's helpful, you know, uh, is to spend your own free time figuring out how to enhance your own self-awareness and figuring out what does that look like to go outward with it. Um, because that, you know, Russell put the phrase intent and impact out there. Um, those are one of those ways to shorten that bridge between your intent and your impact yeah. is to figure out, all right, I'm aware I want to have this impact, but am I actually doing the practices that get me there? Um, gosh, there's a great book called uh, The Culture Code by uh, yeah. Daniel Coyle. Um, in that book, he covers um, a concept that he calls belonging cues. And there are three of them. It's energy, individualization, and is future orientation. Energy being just what it sounds like, what energy you bringing to it. If you're bringing the like, I'm here to like, choose evil and not draw any bridges here. Like people can feel that or if you feel apathetic about it. Like people can sense that you don't have to be bouncing off the walls with enthusiasm, but at least a level of like, Hey, you know, how are you doing? You know, being with the intent of authentically connecting individualization being like, know the context that's a belonging cue in itself is that awareness of like, here's, here's what I'm here to do. Here's what I believe the priorities of everybody in the group are here for, you know, that's going to frame your own purpose here, as well as how you affect it. And then future orientation, it means a lot to go into or to leave something with the sense of we're going to see each other again, it's going to be good. How many times has anybody interacted with a boss? And you've kind of wondered, like, was that was that it? Like, is it over? <laughs> and, and it doesn't feel good. You don't yeah. feel like you belong. If you leave a team meeting and the sense was we don't want to see each other again, mm-hmm. that sucks. And nobody wants that. So on a cultural level, if you're in, if you're encountering something that might have a little bit of tension, practicing those belonging cues will mean a lot. I find that that last one, future orientation, really leaves a big impact on folks. It yeah. really leaves a big impact for me to say like, hey, next time I'd love to hear more about this. Hey, next time I'd. I want to make sure that I'm delivering this part for this uh, project that mm-hmm. that you guys are advocating for. Like, if I can have some of that future orientation, people see a little bit more of the impact that you're trying to create. The belonging cues are energy, individualization, and future orientation. And future orientation. That's Credit great. To Daniel Coyle and his book, The Culture Code. As you were talking, it's making me think of situations I've been in even some very recently, where I have failed, (laughs) (laughs) where I have failed to do what I intended to do. Uh, The impact was not what I thought it was going to be. But I was also thinking about the energy thing. And, you know, I'm someone who's uh, pretty empathetic, like, uh, in terms of like, I can soak up and I can sense energy from other people when I'm like face to face, but it's so much harder in this virtual kind of platform. And for our listeners, I I think a lot of you know, we record this on Zoom. So we're all on video right now with each other. And I think it's a good example, but we also have just done so much business uh, and and personal interaction in these online, dare I say, more disconnected ways of being connected uh, in the last few years. And I I can't help but think like, how does that impact? And when I'm thinking about these experiences where I failed, many of those have been in kind of an online platform that it, it it's so much harder, 
I feel like to effectively communicate that intention, uh, you know, to give those belonging cues that you mentioned. I mean, uh, you know, individualization and future orientation, I think, are maybe a little easier in terms of like, <laughs> is it more challenging to do it over Zoom, for for instance? <laughs> but um, I think they're still really difficult concepts or they can be really difficult to do. Uh, but energy in particular, it just I, I don't know. I'm curious if either of you have comments on that. That's something you've experienced in your work lately. Too. Oh, where like energy yeah. is inhibited a little bit. Oh. Yeah, or it's just hard to like read the read the room. And, you know, people oh. turn their videos off, or and you don't oh. know. Like, did I just did I say something that you know? There's just, or then you get called out for something. This has happened to me. You get called out for something that you didn't even you didn't even really recognize because I'm not right there with the person, and I didn't. I don't know. I didn't recognize maybe that I needed to be more aware of a dynamic that I maybe didn't even know existed in the first place because I don't actually know this person, right? <laughs> They're a square on a computer screen. I don't well, know. It's more complicated. Yeah, it is. And, and amplify that with, um, you know, Russell and I might be there to support one of our employee resource groups, which like, if you're not familiar with an employee resource group, it's an employee-led group uh, that is organized based off of shared identities and affinities. Amplify the feeling that you're talking about by the scenario that I mentioned a moment ago. Maybe you're in a meeting where you're specifically there to support the LGBTQ community and mm -hmm. you don't identify with that community. So there's a little bit of that perfectionism that starts to creep up. That feeling of like, yeah. if I mess up, I could, I could really destroy trust not break trust destroy it yeah but at the same time you can't be scared to make a mistake you know um i will share vulnerably that some of my stronger relationships with folks that i'm trying to lead have come on the heels of like hey the other day in this meeting you said this thing and i did not receive that well mm. and just being able to sit down with them literally sit down even if i'm standing sitting down and saying, shoot, tell me more about it. Because like, just going back to the belonging cues, that's a future orientation doesn't just have to be about like, hey, we're going to see each other again. Future orientation can also be, let's build our relationship together. Mm -hmm. And so like, in our work, we, we really cannot be scared to make a mistake. We're in fact, we're going to make a mistake. That's the, that's the whole concept Definitely. of bias. And you know, the the idea that we all have we all have our own ways that we're programmed to behave that for others may signal some level of not not liking them or maybe not being an ally to them. When you know deep down that's not your intent. But being able to reconcile that impact, reconcile like, hey, now that I'm sorry and thank you, you've actually enhanced my awareness of how to be an ally to you and to be healthier around you. So like now that we feel that often, I don't know, Russell, I'm sorry if I'm putting words in your mouth a little bit, but like, that's something we run into all, all, all the time. And we can't, we can't be afraid to make a mistake. If you're afraid to make a mistake, being someone's ally, kind of shy to step out and do anything. Being an advocate means stepping out for sometimes the voiceless. Yeah. Or stepping out because like somebody needs an amplification of their voice and um and you're in the position to do it um you're not always going to do it the right way so russell hey what would you want to say you look like you wanted to add some more yeah uh, sorry for my gestures uh <laughs> hearing you talk about that um i i'm a certified executive coach and working with leaders energy is such a big focus i mm -hmm. think with leaders and often for the wrong reasons i think it's just the paradigm that people have been you know developed under but when it comes to this kind of work, it's almost inhibiting because the way they want to be perceived as a leader is a problem because within this work, you've got to understand power dynamics and history of that and being unwilling to be vulnerable or admit mistakes or be yeah. overly rigid because you don't want to be perceived as making a mistake makes it so much harder, I think, to build connection and to make meaningful work. And then when yeah. you do make a mistake, it's all the worst because you have no context for which to build trust or to 
to ask for forgiveness or any of those things. And so using the energy to like, you know, it's okay to make mistakes. We're going to, and what's, what's important. And I, I coach soccer too. And I tell my players, I'm like, it's not the mistake that matters. It's what happens after it. Mm -hmm. And so always, what are you going to do once that happens? Uh, I think Jake gave a great example because um, I think in a coaching conversation I had with somebody the other day, I insinuated that they weren't American because of their religious practice and the way they grew up and they were born here. And so I was, I said that they didn't take it that way, thankfully. And I stopped. I was like, you know what? I am so sorry. I just insinuated this. I don't know if you took it that way. I did not mean that. I did not mean to say you're not American because of that. And you you have to be aware of just weird things like that that happen. And uh, I, I I really appreciate the grace this person showed me. But sometimes those things happen. Little things like that in a conversation can have a real big impact on belonging. Um, and so really thinking about what it means to be a leader is is definitely something to you need to be humble and, and willing to make mistakes on. And um, that's why my coaching practice with leaders of like in this space, make mistakes, ask me the hard questions, say the really silly things um, because this is where we can get, we can get that worked yeah. out. Jake. You're bringing up a topic that we consistently have to bring up with people who lead others, which is um, managing what our Roosevelt Thomas calls diversity tensions. Diversity is a beautiful thing. It's, it's something that we all want to have in all of our environments. Um, but there's an organic tension that happens with it because of just the difference. And yeah. trying to navigate things, even with similarity, is tough enough. Now, trying to understand like, oh, this is where this tension is coming from and maybe how to either mitigate it if it's truly conflict or, or just how to keep things going and sustaining a healthy environment through uh, diversity tensions is um, a battle in its own for for leaders um so yeah anyway i just wanted to introduce that concept of diversity tension into this conversation uh because for us when we started studying that concept it started to add a lot more clarity mm-hmm. to something that leaders um experience because like people will highlight like you know so and so is having a difficulty with this person and it really seems to just be personality difference or you know we have one uh person within our team who is just a strong personality or really see things sees things in black and white and really you know like um so helping people create kind of a more of a whole picture of what their team is um has been very beneficial for for folks. Russell, well, I think that, well, I just want to say really quick, I, I think yeah. that goes into that idea of individualization too, because I think there's a, there's a shifting paradigm of what leadership is. And, you know, I think many, maybe not all that long ago, but many years ago when someone would say like, you know, think of a leader Mm-hmm. The first thing that would come to mind would be like a CEO of an organization, like you know, standing up on a stage with this vast sea of faceless employees or leading those employees, right? Like that's not how it plays out most of the time anymore in uh in a lot of ways, but we still are like uh societally kind of stuck in that paradigm a little bit in some places, um, where it's harder to like as a leader recognize those individual differences and navigate those diversity tensions is that what you call them diversity, yeah, diversity yeah. tensions yeah it comes from this book called um the five disciplines of inclusive leadership they share some figures uh one is from the world economic forum between you know um spanish flu and uh the black death there was like 500 years between those there are 57 global pandemics during those centuries 93% of them were linked to like so- socio political revolts of some kind it's interesting because like for lots of reasons, but the reason why we share it is because, you know, we start to use terms about this current time, like unprecedented, never before seen. It's like, I actually know what we're experiencing. <laughs> yeah. It's right. It's laughable because like, no, actually what we experience is rather normal on the scale of human history. And, and kind of predictable. Honestly, yeah, mm-hmm. kind of, completely. Kind of predictable. Who could have seen it? Well, all of us well, could all have seen it. <laughs> So uh, interestingly, let's you know take it back to leadership. 
how this recent kind of uh, disruption has also affected leadership. Again, from Corn Ferry, citing the same book, uh, Five Disciplines of Inclusive Leaders. And they asked them if they believe that uh, their current leaders, like the current leaders that are in their positions, are still fit for their current leadership roles. 67% of these investors that participated said that their current leaders aren't fit for the future. Wow. Right. So like we have these leaders who are disrupting their ideas of how to lead anymore because we have workforces that are saying, hey, if you don't have some sort of commitment to racial justice, I'm willing to leave. And attrition rates all over every industry are showing that that's true. If you're not going to have some commitment here, I'll I'll go somewhere where that is a value of them. So it behooves everybody to, to have a commitment there. And it's also the best way that we can transform the world that we all want to see now anyway. The one that's more equitable, the one that is actually sustaining solutions for every community and being creative to do so. It is perfectly timed for exactly everything that Russell and I are experiencing, like daily in the the workplaces. I have a question that is going to maybe shift the focus a little bit back inward. Uh, We've talked a lot about knowing your own identity and uh, having that self-awareness. And I'm wondering if either of you in the work that you have done or are doing have experienced a particular kind of um, internal impact from the work, and that is known as moral injury. Moral injury is uh, when we see or hear about something that goes against our core values or do or fail to do something in the line of our work. It may even be something required of us. We do something or we fail to do something that goes against our deep core moral values. I wonder if either of you would be willing to speak to that, either if you've experienced some kind of injury, it doesn't have to be full on injury. It could be just moral frustration, right? Or moral distress, moral anguish. Like, you know, there's a continuum, but does that show up for you? And if so, how are you responding to that? Great question. Uh, I guess I could start because um, I had to. I because I think I've been experiencing that in the in the past sixty days. If I'm being honest, yeah, it it shows up a couple of ways. So one area for us is in the work of health equity, mm-hmm. and health equity is this idea that systems are created for the outcomes that they achieve. And so we as a system need to understand what outcomes are we achieving in in the world as we as we go. And that takes a lot of there's a lot of risk in that because then now you're asking the organizations, whoever's participating, to go back and find out if they are hurting people. Yeah. And often in an in a, an unintentional way, like these aren't necessarily intentional things. Like when you talk about racism and structural racism, they're not necessarily an indictment that you're intentionally doing things. You can do harm unintentionally, and there are more examples. I see examples of unintentional harm all the time, and so you're asking organizations to like, you know, what are you willing to take responsibility for? Mm-hmm. And that conversation's hard. Because organizations are, they they exist to to be productive, and those things can be counter in a sense. And so, sometimes there could be where you're sitting there and you're like, "How hard could it be just to acknowledge something?" And it's really hard. And I see organizations all over the place struggling with that. Um, in the DEI realm of that helping like when people fail to acknowledge their role in something really hurts because it's not like our department can inflict and hold people accountable and so you know you're like at the end of the day you've identified a problem you identified a solution possibly but it's up to those individuals to take it or leave it and they leave it and it just feels like uh because i think one thing that i've come to understand about myself within this work is that you can't force DEI on people. Like when we're going back to that energy conversation, you can't come in with this like bludgeon of DEI self-righteousness. Right. Like is 
as justified as you are, like that's not how it can be done. And so sometimes you're going to fight meaningful battles. You're going to do everything right. And then at the end, you know, what the, you know, the ideal solution doesn't come out in those days, you kind of go back to your office and you're just kind of like, all right, well, what was that for? Uh, there's, you know, just feel hopeless. And you're like, well, I'm not going to do that again. Or you may be in the room with someone who's just exuding energy that they don't care. And this is meaningless. I think that hurts the worst because it's just like you can feel it radiating and you there's just nothing you can do and you're just like enduring it until you can get out and then you're just like i need some help i need to get this clear my mind so i think there are i think that is something that is often experienced is moral entry within this work definitely from a variety of reasons um and not to take us away, but just to break, loop something in. When you're thinking about diversity tension, you've got to include everything about people. It's not just gender identity. It's not just sex. It's not just race. It's not just, there are so many things that are in there and they all yeah. intersect differently for different people. And we're never, we're not showing up just for black people as a African-American male. I cannot, I'm not just showing up for black people. I'm showing up for everybody. I just happen to be black and a lot of my a lot of my experiences are because I'm black but that's not the only reason I do the work. Yeah, I think that's an important thing to remember. Like it's also our our viewpoints, our experiences, like all of those things make us diverse too. And actually I want to share just briefly and then we can turn that question over to Jake too. Um but in our in our last two day kind of intensive training, our colleague Krisha gave a really great visual example. And I hope I, I hope I do it justice in describing how this worked. <laughs> but uh, our listeners know, because Roxanne and I have, have talked about this, that she and I are both uh, white women, both raised in the Midwest. And, um, you know, we, we have some shared uh, identities. We also have some differences. Um, in the ways that we have, you know, experienced things and perspectives and and that sort of thing. So, um, our colleague Krisha, though, is black, and when we had this uh, opportunity to talk about the intersection of DEI and trauma informed care in our in our last training, she gave this example of the three of us sitting at the table, and she said something like, "You know, the three of us sitting at this table, we represent." Diversity. She said, this is diversity, right? This is diversity. The the audience agreed. (laughs) And then she got up and walked away from the table and she said, you see them sitting there? And this was me and Roxanne still sitting at the table. She said, this is diversity. And everyone kind of paused for a second because (laughs) I think our tendency is right to, to look at those outward uh, identifiers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Identifiers. Identities. Identifiers. Yeah. What, I don't know what the right word is. Um, Gender expression, right. skin color, those things that can be right there Ooh. in your, you know, yeah. clearly anyway, when the, you meet the someone. Point, the point was, though, that, you know, anytime you have two people, there, yeah. there is diversity that exists. And, and we don't always recognize it and pay attention to those diversity tensions that may exist. So, anyway, I thought that was a really powerful example for that class and I, much gratitude to Krisha for bringing that in into that space. Yes. Um, it was really helpful. Uh, we didn't know, Roxanne and I didn't know that she was going to do that. It was really a powerful <laughs> moment for us too, I think. I'll speak for you, Roxanne. But uh, yeah, it was. It was, it, was in, it was intense, but in a good way, in a good way for us. Yeah, well, it was a brilliant way to highlight visible and invisible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, wow, that's brilliant. Uh, yeah, she is brilliant. She is. Yeah, yeah. Krisha Williams, everybody. Krisha Williams. Yep, Krisha <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hey, just, yeah, I guess uh, to contribute a response to the question earlier. Yeah, I'd really love to know how you respond. How do you care for yourself? Ooh, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, we, we've highlighted the things that can cause the moral injury. Mm-hmm. What do you do? I mean, y'all are swimming in this stuff. It's like the air you breathe, right? Like there's no you way still show for you up to, every day. There's exactly. So you got to have some things that you're doing in the midst. 
mm-hmm. that are helping you um, with with moral injury. I, I think it would be you know with with forgiveness. Um, you know, something has violated your deep moral code. One of the things is how do you forgive yourself or others, right? And how do you find purpose and meaning in that and and use it to energize you moving forward? You know, that's that's one of the things, um, but it's also, there are also other things that impact you. It's not just moral injury that you can experience, but you can have some secondary trauma. You know, you can have some fatigue. Um, you may occasionally experience burnout. Like I'm interested in how you, as literally people who work in this every day, what do you do to care for yourselves? You know, you're, uh, I say this not to belabor, uh, what you just highlighted, how fatigue, burnout, um, acute injury, all these things can all coexist, right? Like as you're doing intensive work like this. So I don't say the following thing to belabor that point, but it helps turn the corner into a response there. Going back to health equity work, mm-hmm. when you're doing health equity work, time is not your friend. Mm. and That is the thing that fatigues us. That's the constant running stressor. But then you hit the acute injuries. So quick example of this is Russell and I, and I'm sure everyone in this recording and listeners are aware that Black women and infants are dying at a much higher rate than literally any other Mm -hmm. demographic in the world. When you know that and your job is to try to transform systems so that there's some level of equity there, but you're also aware of decades of work that happened before you were even born to make this the case, there is a just certain fatigue that is always on you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then you hear about the stories of somebody losing someone. And then you hear about the call to battle against racism, dismantle racism. And you're like, I, yeah, I know I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, you know? So yeah, I, I, I share this to say, yeah, there's a level of forgiveness you need to wear for yourself. Like I am doing, I'm doing what I can. Hmm. Yeah. And if you can, do your best and live with the result. That's the most you can do, even just at at a human level. For myself, I know it starts with acceptance of my effort and acceptance of who I am in the mix of this very complex uh, system that, that I happen to find myself in. If I can start with that forgiveness and that acceptance, there's already a bit of softening that results from that. For me on an individual level, I have noticed um, that journaling stream of consciousness thoughts about my emotional experiences, my thought experiences have been very healing for me, sometimes cathartic for me. Meditation also has become a practice that has helped me with healing, mending, and reorienting to who I want to be. But both of those practices came out of experiences with individual therapy. There is a point with any sort of heavy load that you carry where you need to accept, maybe I need to see somebody who specializes in this. You know, if you notice some level of misalignment within yourself, just like you would go see a chiropractor, it's just a you know, such a loose example there, but you would want to do the same between your thoughts and your emotions. Um, I know for Russell and I, it's also been beneficial to connect with other DEI professionals because there is health that's had on the normalization of your experiences. Yeah. So if I could bring any level to a personalization to that response, it would be, Hey, Therapeutic work has helped me identify certain practices, but then connecting with others has helped me normalize like, oh, okay, this is the job. Mm -hmm. And how do I continue to cope with the day in, day out 
I would say an asterisk on the journaling practice is I've come back to that in writing out and trying to reconnect myself with this is why I do the work, reorienting to the passion, the purpose. Some part of the practice, not every single part of, the pra- of your practice is for wellness, but some part of your practice has to reorient you to purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other side of the coin of purpose is hope. So getting a little preachy. What you were talking about makes me think a little bit of what I have heard Meg Wheatley share. And maybe I've shared this before on this podcast. I do talk about Meg Wheatley a lot. I'm a, I'm a fan. But she challenges people to consider not just like, what do I want to contribute, but shift that focus and instead ask, like, what is meaningful for me to contribute? How can I be like, what is needed here and how can I be of service here? And am I the person to do that thing that's needed right now? And so like, it take again, going back to kind of where we started today, uh, that self-awareness and recognizing like, what's my... What's my capacity? What's my role? What's my, what am I bringing with me into this? What's in my metaphorical backpack (laughs) that I'm walking into the room with? You know, where do I, where do I step in? Where do I need to step back? Uh, You know, I think a lot of those questions are really powerful for all of us doing any kind of culture change kind of work. I mean, we're working against the grain. We're going going countercultural um, <laughs> against the things that have been so deeply rooted in our society and our organizations, our systems. And I just have, a, I keep going back to those questions and just even for myself thinking about like how, you know, what, what helps me know, how do I even know, like what, what is mine to contribute? I don't know, just trying to be more thoughtful about that myself. So I wanted to share that with everyone too. Okay. Thank you so much for this far ranging discussion. So many things to ponder. We have one final question that we would like to ask you. And that is, what is one thing that if everyone in the world started doing it tomorrow, if you could, if you had the power, right, to have everyone in the world start doing one thing differently tomorrow? What would you have them do that would change the world? I'll go first. Uh, I have two, but I'll try to pick one. Um, the first is having accountability when you're wrong. And that could that could look like I messed up. Yes, you're right. Like acknowledging that something has happened, even if you're not the cause of it, but acknowledging that it goes a long way of building safety, trust. And along with that, recognize the impact your behaviors have on others i think we go through life so often that we're just like i'm here move out my way but we do things often that can impact people quite negatively and they yeah. and mm-hmm. they perpetuate systems that feel unsafe unequitable and we get defensive we say well i didn't mean to that wasn't my intention yeah right. yes there's yes. still impact yeah yeah avoid Good. defensiveness at all costs yes yeah. thank you roxanne Thanks, Russell. How about you, Jake? Okay. So if I am sharing my one thing, because I am noticing that this, I'm genuinely noticing that this one thing is making the world of difference in my life over the past six months. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cause I, cause this has been a personal goal of mine that I've written out and I, I stare at this often. Take responsibility for the quality of your relationships. Mm. Oh. If you take wow. responsibility, right, you take responsibility for the quality of your relationships, you're going to start thinking about, okay, what does it mean to love this person that like, we haven't been on good terms for a while? Um, what is my own responsibility and boundary with maybe one of my parents that I just like, we're having some evolution in, in our relationship um, that also applies to your relationship with yourself? Am I treating myself with any sort of respect? So yeah, take responsibility for the quality of relationships. I'm feeling called out, Jake. I'm not going to lie. I'm just trying to, I am looking, I am looking right at your window the whole time. How are Uh, you? My whole body is tingling with he's talking to you. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's so powerful though, because so many times we blame, 
instead of taking responsibility, we blame the other person for the quality of the relationships or something, some outer thing, right? Oh yeah, it comes and from that defensiveness you mentioned. Exactly. Before. Right. Are and you, so yeah. the spin of yes and, right? Yes, mm-hmm. maybe someone did do something and <laughs> and I am also responsible. I have shared responsibility for the quality of how things are between us right now. Those are both so powerful, y'all. Thank I also you. I love that you highlighted the relationship with yourself too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that actually leads really well into what we want to highlight as our first key takeaway in this episode, which is having some increased self-awareness and how beneficial that is to uh, being able to engage in this work of trauma-informed caring and equity, diversity, inclusion, justice, access, um, creating belonging. You know, we have to be able to acknowledge what's going on in ourselves, take care of ourselves. We'll get to that a little bit more in a minute, but, um, you know, having that pause, um, asking yourself some of the hard questions that you need to do in order to be okay, in order to step into a space, in order to, uh, do good work. Uh, that self-awareness is really where it begins. Yeah. And I think it was Jake who the phrase was, uh, this work includes deep reconciling Mm -hmm. within your own being and, uh, and even within your own organization, right. In, in both ways. Um, good. All right. So the second takeaway has to do with, um, some tips for when you're having those difficult conversations or conversations around difficult topics and there is bias. And so the tips include, um, knowing yourself, your identity, your biases, biases, and um, I think proactively working on that th- those things in you. And then the second one had to do with having conversations with your teammates, so you're prepared, um, so that you know what your goal is, what your intention is, awareness of your impact, and to show humility as you um, interact with others. The third one had to do with listening, like really, really listening, asking questions, and learning about those in the group. Um, You can't teach those concepts to a group that is in their stress response. And if you're in your stress response and they know if you don't understand their, their context, they, they, they are not going to um, be as open to you. So really that's also about humility. And the fourth one, the fourth tip is address the stress, address the stress in others, address the stress in yourself. Uh, And that brings us of course, back into trauma-informed caring and the practices and principles of trauma-informed caring. The fifth tip is that um, when you have self-awareness, then you have the the power to practice the belonging cues. And three that we talked about were energy, individuation, and future orientation. Um, And then the final tip is about resisting perfectionism. Um, Working to co-create a culture where mistakes are uh, anticipated, understood, allowed, um, and open and honest feedback is given and received. Thanking people who give you feedback because you know it's an opportunity to grow. So having this uh, culture of where mistakes are made, um, feedback is given and received, apologies are offered, forgiveness is offered, humility is practiced, and growth is not just expected. It's the norm. Growth is just the way we do things around here. And then our final takeaway from this episode is related to self-care because this work is hard, uh, because we are doing things that are against the grain, they're countercultural in our society and our organizations, because we're exposed to a lot of trauma, because it brings up stuff in ourselves, um, because we have (laughs) feelings of inadequacy or insufficiency in the midst of that work that we do. Uh, taking care of ourselves is really important. And so, uh, you know, I think we shared some tips uh, throughout the whole episode, um, but especially toward the end, they're talking about uh, things we can do, whether that's self-reflection, journaling, some therapy, and and take, and take. I don't think we ever said it outright, but taking care of our bodies, doing mm-hmm. those things to metabolize our stress, to move those stress chemicals through our bodies so so that we can still show up and keep doing the things that we feel compelled to do, the things we feel called to do, um, you know, however we sort of look at that. 
Russell, Jake, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having us. Our pleasure. This is it great. has been a pleasure. We want to remind our listeners that you can learn more about the ATTC by checking out the website for the Mid-America Addiction Technology Transfer Center. There's lots of resources there, as well as previous episodes of our podcast. We also want to remind you to check out the Virtual Room of Refuge, where you can find a variety of support for your own well-being. Um, you can access our YouTube channel there, and you can also subscribe to our newsletter, Conscious Connections. Thanks again for joining us. It is our hope that where you work and where you live, this podcast will offer you practical support for the practice of trauma-informed caring. <laughs>